Greetings from Grace Reform Baptist, Pastor Dale Smith sent his greetings. And yes, I know many of these guys from uh, attempting to play softball every Monday night. Um, But it's nice to see the rest of you as well. So, as you know, our passage today is going to come from the book of Luke, Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Uh, And it is the parable of the persistent widow. The uh, scripture reading, I'm sure, was chosen very selectively because the parable of the persistent widow is extremely similar to the parable of the, the friend at midnight, which is what we read for the scripture reading. They are not the same parable, but there are a lot of similarities between uh, the two. Certainly one of those is that is the theme. So the theme of both of these parables deals with our faithfulness and persistence Uh, in the act of prayer, as well as the rewards that we can seek to obtain because of that persistent prayer. Uh, The parables are also similar in that they represent a stark contrast between one of the characters of the parable and and God. And we will will see that here. Now, a parable, I assume everyone is probably familiar, but maybe we shouldn't assume. A parable is simply a story, an illustration, Uh, They're very common in Jesus' teaching. He would use them to illustrate uh, a point that he was making, albeit that sometimes it wasn't completely obvious what the the point was. They're not all metaphors. There are different different forms that the parables take, but the the primary means or the primary purpose of a parable was an illustration. So let's, before we go any further, let's read Luke 18, uh, verses 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And so it is, we see in this, uh, in this parable clearly that we're dealing with the spiritual discipline of, of prayer. And we're, we're dealing with a parable that has a particular intent, uh, and that intent is stated right there in verse 1, you know, that we ought always to pray, that we ought to persist in prayer uh, and not lose heart. I do, I, I think it's true, the discipline, the spiritual discipline of prayer is one uh, that is going to be a struggle for many. Um, more so maybe at some times than, than at others. And what I mean by that is most of us don't find it that difficult to be fairly consistent getting up on a Sunday morning and coming in to God's house uh, to hear from his word, which is one of the, the means of grace, but that would be a, a spiritual discipline. Uh, most of us, at some point at least, will become fairly consistent in our own reading of the Bible. Certainly that doesn't mean you'll never miss a day. Uh, of devotions, but that's a pretty common thing. Um, but I think throughout the ages, if you ask the people of God, 
what area of the Christian life they struggle the most with, especially as it relates to being consistent and diligent, I think one of the answers would be prayer. Uh, I think often we have the tendency to do a couple of things. Number one, we have the tendency to pray when times are tough. It's kind of humorous. Even atheists pray when times are tough uh, or in emergency situations. And as Christians, we do the same thing. So when things are going really well, I have the tendency maybe to not pray, to not be as, as diligent in prayer. But when things are going badly, then, then I, I do have the tendency at, at that point. Um, or we have the tendency to ask for something a few times, and then if we perceive that we're not going to get that something, we stop asking. Uh, we stop persisting in prayer, not that it not that we can't realize that God's answer may be no, but that doesn't mean we would stop praying. We would, we would keep asking. We would be asking for wisdom in that situation. So that's what I mean by that statement, that this is one of those things where to be diligent and consistent in prayer, I believe, is a struggle in the Christian life for various reasons. Those are just a couple of them. Uh, it's certainly true in my life. Um, and as I read this and go through this passage, it becomes very convicting to me the fact that I'm not as diligent or persistent in prayer uh, as I ought to be. And so that may be the case for some here. Uh, If it's appropriate, I pray that we would be convicted of that and then brought to being more persistent in our prayer. But However, the purpose of this parable is actually to encourage us uh, to the benefits of persistent prayer. John Calvin said this about prayer. He said, We know that perseverance in prayer is a rare and difficult attainment, and it's a manifestation of our unbelief that when our first prayers are not successful, we immediately throw away not only hope, but all the ardor of prayer. But it is an undoubted evidence of our faith if we are disappointed of our wish and yet do not lose courage. Most properly, therefore, does Christ recommend his disciples to persevere in praying. So he says it's a rare and difficult attainment to be persevering in prayer because sometimes we don't get what we ask for. Um, All right, the message today will have three basic sections that apply to the passage at hand. The first one is just simply the setting or the purpose of uh, of the parable. We'll deal with the actual purpose, which is pretty clear. It's stated right from the outset, but we'll look at a little bit more on the context to just give us a little bit uh, of additional insight on this parable itself and some of the application. And then the latter two points will be in reference to the two main characters of the story. Okay? On the first, in the first hand, the, uh, the judge, and in the judge, we're going to see a stark contrast between the judge and God. And then the widow. And in the widow, we're going to see a stark contrast between the widow and ourselves, although there will be some comparison there as well. Okay? So first, this, the purpose and setting of the parable itself. And we've already stated here, the purpose is pretty simple. It's stated in verse 1. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And this is actually pretty uncommon. It's not very often in the parables that we are explicitly given the point of the parable right at the start. In fact, sometimes you don't ever hear the point of the parable. Sometimes it's at the end. Sometimes we have to kind of try to discern exactly what it is. 
In other cases, we have to flip ahead a couple chapters to where Jesus explains it to his disciples, you know, and he tells them uh, what the purpose of the parable is. It, it actually kind of alludes to the fact that even though these parables were illustrations, they were not always to make things explicitly clear. And we won't go back, but when Jesus started speaking in parables, he started speaking in parables, and there are some interesting statements about why he started speaking in parables. Okay, so, in other words, they're not all just a, a blatant metaphor. They're not all a blatant illustration. We don't always get what the purpose is. We do here. Okay, the purpose is simply uh, that... Uh, He's, the Lord Jesus Christ is seeking to encourage his disciples and Christians to be men of prayer, people of prayer, and to be persistent in that prayer, not to lose heart. Uh, the broader context of this is found in the previous chapter. As I, I studied through quite a few parables a couple of years ago and uh, I found that to be the case almost all the time. It's, it's sometimes very easy to make to, to come up with misconceptions in regards to parables, and your best defense against that is, or at least one of the defenses against that, is studying the context. Look at what's around the parable. Look at what, who Jesus was talking to, uh, what he was talking about. That's not so much the case here because we're dealing with an explicit purpose statement. So it's, why am I going to look at the context in this case? Well, I think it's just going to open up some, some additional application. It's not going to change the meaning of the parable, but it's going to open things up. So in the end, at the end of chapter 17, uh, my Bible has the heading at verse 20, Luke 17, 20, the coming of the kingdom. And so Jesus is actually describing to his disciples what he is referring to as the days of the Son of Man. And so he's, he's actually talking to them about the, uh, the end times. He's talking about, he's prophesying about what is going to come to be. Uh, notice in verse 27, he talks about uh, the days of Noah. And in the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking and marrying, being given in marriage. He goes on and says, talks about the days of Lot in verse 28. Eating and drinking, buying and selling, planning and building. And so he, he's, uh, again, he is... He's pointing forward and he's talking about the end times. Now, none of these things that he mentions is uh, necessarily evil in and of itself. What's actually the problem is what is missing. Uh, all of these things, eating, drinking, buying, selling, marrying, they're all gifts from God. They're all part of God's common grace. But the thing that is absent in all of this, which was absent in the days of Noah, which was absent in the days of Lot, which will be absent the end, the end of days as well, is any regard for the one who actually provides any of those gifts. Uh, any regard for, for God. So in other words, he's telling them about the end of days that men and women will be living as if God doesn't exist, not regarding God in these days. We certainly see that true today. Mankind in general is living as if there is no God. Uh, they are living absent of a relationship with their creator. And as Jesus' disciples, and us as Jesus' disciples, that can actually be fairly discouraging. Okay? Uh, it, can be, it could be discouraging for us to try to live in a way that is befitting of the gospel and to not see anyone doing that around us. So whether he's pointing to the end of, un, end of 
or he is pointing to the end of days. He's pointing to things that have not yet happened. And it's in that context that he stops. And Luke in verse 1 says, he's going to tell them now a parable to tell them to be consistent in prayer, persistent, and not to lose heart. It's not only that, it's also the position of this in Luke's gospel that we don't have to read ahead or read behind. We see a gospel in, a, in, a, in any of the gospels, when you get into chapter about chapter 18, if it has more than 16 chapters, unlike Mark. But if you get here, you know what's coming, right? We, we know what's about to come. Jesus knows what is about to come. Jesus is fully God and fully man, and he knows that he is about to give his life for the sins of many. His disciples don't know that, even though he's already told them a couple of times. But they don't know that what's about to come is extreme persecution of their master, the death of their master, the disbanding of their little group, at least for a temporary time. And then beyond that, once Jesus does come back, they're going to face even further persecution. So Jesus, it, it, he's, he's talking about end, end of days, and he's also giving them this parable and telling them to be persistent right before they're about to experience some extreme hardship. Right? And, so, and, and so I think, as I said, that's going to open things up a little bit because the intent of this parable is not really to convict you of a lack of persistent prayer, although, as I said, if, if that's appropriate, okay, but it's to encourage you to be persistent in prayer. And so what's, what we're going to find as we, as we walk through these different characters is that there are reasons in these different characters that show us why we should be persistent in prayer, that give us that, that encouragement. Okay? Um, <clears throat> okay, so the second point is the unjust judge, the first character of the story described to us in verses 2 to 5 of the passage. And so let's read 2 to 5 again. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. So we need to note at the outset that the judge is not a comparison with God, uh, but instead it is a stark contrast. Now, there might be some similarities between the, the position of uh, authority that the judge has and the position of authority that God has, but that would be it. Once we get to the character and nature of the judge, we're going to see a stark contrast as opposed to a comparison. And this is actually something that's pretty common in Jesus' teaching. Uh, it is an argument from the lesser to the greater. We saw it in Luke 11, where he was arguing that if this friend was going to do something, then how much more would God do the same thing? Or if we as evil people know how to give our children good gifts, how much more then will God do this? So essentially, an argument from the lesser to the greater is, if A is true, how much more then is B true? And that, that's what we see here with the judge uh, and God. Let's look two two things about the judge, his position and then some of his qualities. The position of the judge was one of power and authority. Now, this is not 
uh, a typical judge, as we would think a judge, where they remain in one spot. Uh, judges in that day would typically go around, uh, move around from place to place, although they might occupy one city for a little while. Uh, they would be traveling judges, and they would visit the people, and they would hear cases, and then they would decide upon those cases, which is what we see a judge doing today. Okay? But this judge would often be, as our judges often are, that, that, that's the last uh, that's the last court. There is no court of appeals necessarily, okay? in a lot of uh, in most of these cases. So the people who were coming to the judge were at the mercy of the judge. He decides what's going to happen to them, and he decides it presumably based on information in the case, as opposed to other things. Judges in this day were had a position of power and authority. They were also charged to care for those who are less fortunate which would be the widows and orphans. Uh, and the position of widows and orphans is very prominent in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, God has a lot to say about orphans and widows. In James 1.27, we read that pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. The verse goes on, but that's the first part of the, the verse. Judges were called specifically in Jeremiah 21.3, excuse me, not to do violence to the widow. Uh, in Isaiah 1.17, they're called to judge for the fatherless orphans and plead for the widow. In Psalm 68.5, we read, Father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. So we see that he has a special place in his heart for orphans and widows. Why am I bringing this out? One of the big point, one of the jobs of the leaders of Israel was to look after orphans and widows. They were given a position of authority and they had people at their mercy, but they had a specific charge to care for these particular type of people. Uh, and so <clears throat> that was one of, that would be one of his qualities. And in fact, a lot of times in the judgment of Israel, when that judgment comes, there are mentions about how orphans and widows were being treated. I don't have the exact references for those, but they, he references the fact that they did not do these things, and this is one of the reasons that they would be judged. Okay, so that it was a big part of the position of the judge. It was one of his responsibilities. Um, being a judge in the true sense of the word would presume certain qualities. Uh, those qualities would be justice. They would be righteousness, fairness, compassion, mercy, as we start to look at the qualities of this judge, we don't, we don't find any of these things. So he had a position of authority, but he was abusing it. His qualities then, first quality was no fear of God. These are plainly stated in the text. The fact that he had no fear of God is stated in verse 2, and then again in verse 4 where the judge says it himself. It has almost like a boasting quality about it, as if he was boasting about the fact that he doesn't fear God. Uh, what does the Bible say about the fear of God? First of all, the fear of God is not uh, a fear as if in I'm deathly afraid of something. You know, um, <clears throat> it is a. It's more of an awe. Okay, it is a. It's a, you are in awe. It's a. It's a reverential fear. It's not I'm going to go run for the hills fear, but it's I understand God and I fear God. Uh, rightly, and the Bible has a lot to say about the fear of God. The Bible says that the uh, fear of God is something that all men should should have. 
because of, of God being their creator and because of his great power. Um, of course, if somebody lives their life as if God doesn't exist, they're not going to have any fear of God. You know, they, don't, they don't acknowledge God. <clears throat> or some of them might even say that there is no God. And the Bible says that that person is a fool. In Proverbs 1, 7, we very famous verse that everybody probably knows, and that is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Well, it would stand to reason that if I was a judge, one of the qualities I would need would be wisdom, and this judge doesn't have any fear of God, so he can't be a legitimate judge. He can't be a righteous and fair judge. So that's quality number one, no fear of God. Quality number two, he has no respect for his fellow man. He clearly states that as well. Right? We can see that as a natural product uh, of men who don't fear God. Matthew Henry put it like this. He said, it's not strange if those who have cast off the fear of their creator be altogether regardless of their fellow creatures, where no fear of God is, no good is to be expected. Sometimes we hear statements like that, and we can think of lots of people that we know that don't fear God, who do regard their fellow man and are kind to others and looking out for others. So I, to say that ultimately no good can be expected when there is no, no fear of God. And in this case, we have a man who doesn't fear God, who has no regard uh, for man, and these character traits in a judge would be very, very dangerous, okay? The attribute of selfishness would be bad to any individual, but when you have this attribute in the case of a judge who is going to have to be deciding cases, then it's, it's a big problem because certainly this person would then uh, decide cases not based on the merit of the individuals or the truthfulness of the actual facts of the case, but based on uh, how it might be or how it might serve himself. You know, this judge would be inclined to give justice, quote-unquote, to the highest bidder, to sell justice. So no fear of God, no fear of man. The third quality that we see is unmerciful, which flows right out of both of the previous two qualities. It stands to reason, if the judge doesn't have regard for fellow man, that they, he wouldn't be merciful, and he wouldn't be merciful to those who need mercy most. Uh, the poor and the helpless would have nothing to bring to the judge. They would have no, they could, they could not benefit him in any way, and so therefore they wouldn't receive justice. Now, uh, in this case, this is what we find with this poor widow. She doesn't have anything to bring to the judge, and so therefore she's not receiving justice. Now, she ultimately does receive justice, but she, and she receives justice because of her persistence in coming to him, but he does it with selfish motives as opposed to out of a heart of compassion. He does it, as we read in verse 5, because the widow keeps bothering me. I'm going to give her justice so she doesn't beat me down by her continual coming. Okay, so even when he does actually show mercy, he shows mercy <laughs> in a completely selfish way. Okay, now, why are we harping on this? Well, this judge is finally also unrighteous. That's the final character quality. Jesus pronounces the judge as unrighteous due to all the things that we've just seen. So the question is, why, why, am I, why am I harping on this? Because I think the purpose of the parable is to show these extreme contrasts. It's to show the extreme contrast between the judge and God. Okay? All of the things we've just said about the judge, other than the position of authority, cannot be said about God. In fact, the absolute opposite. 
would be said about God. Right? The judge <clears throat> has no regard for man, but God does. The judge is unjust, unrighteous, but God is just. God is righteous. God is merciful. God is compassionate. God has a heart for widows and orphans and, and, sees, that, uh, and sees that out. And so we're, we are being encouraged to be persistent in prayer, not to the effect that the widow was, not to browbeat God into submission, but we're being encouraged to be persistent in prayer because of how much greater God is than this judge, because of the, the difference it's that that's the encouragement for us to be persistent in prayer. God desires for his people to pray. God, God desires for us to bring our request before him. We're called to do that in countless, uh, in countless places. It's a command, but it is also a, a, a drawing. It, it's a command. It is an imperative, but it's also something that is just you know, being encouraged because of the benefits that it has for you. Christ desires his people to pray. Uh, Christ is actively involved in, involved in those prayers, in uh, functioning as our mediator, the go-between between God and man. He's interceding on our behalf. Uh, and so Christ is constantly doing those things. And so the encouragement to pray comes from the nature and character of God himself, one pastor called it the theology of prayer, basically because God is so far removed and different from the character of the judge, should we not pray? Right. Now we're going to see much more, I think more of the encouragement comes when we start looking at the widow, but for right now that, that's, that is, uh, or we start looking at the widow's situation, but we do see a very, very stark contrast between the judge and God. So let's change, let's shift now to the widow the second character in the story uh, is this poor widow who brought her case before the judge. Now, in order to fully understand this, we have to understand what a widow is. I assume most young people know, but a, a widow would be a woman whose husband had died and left her alone. Uh, and in that time, um, being a widow was really, really a bad thing. Okay. Today, being a widow is not a great thing, but especially in the United States, you know, we have a lot of provisions and things for people, so you might think it's not that bad other than the emotional grief. But being a widow in these days would have been very detrimental. It would also have been something that was very common uh, because most women would have married very early, been given in marriage very early, and they would have married older men who are already established. And so, inevitably, those older men are going to die before uh, their wife would in many cases, and then they would leave that woman really with not very many options. Um, you would <clears throat> potentially, she could return to her family, her original family, and if she did that, she would forfeit any inheritance that she might have gotten from her husband. Okay. Um, she could, if she chose that, she would probably end up being, if she just left, she would probably be, end up being fairly destitute. It's a male-oriented society. She wouldn't really have the ability to, to, uh, to fend for herself. Uh, she would not have that ability. She could 
if she did have some sort of, or she could stay with the family of the man, but then she would probably end up being just functioning as a servant in most cases, maybe in extreme cases being sold uh, into, uh, into slavery. In the, the third case, in the unlikely event that she actually did get some sort of inheritance, there's fairly good evidence that people would constantly be out to get her, to try to swindle her out of that inheritance. Um, <clears throat> we actually see that in the, uh, in the book of, of Luke. If you for, go forward to, uh, to chapter 20, to chapter 20, excuse me. Luke 20, verse 46 and 47 at the very end of the chapter. It says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive a greater condemnation. That's just kind of a side reference, who devour widows' houses. But it is... It is speaking to a problem that potentially would have been common that, uh, or at least that I've seen in, in other places in commentaries that, would, that was common where, you know, again, either the woman goes back to her family, forfeits anything she has and doesn't really have a way to make a living, or she stays with the family and she's a servant or a slave, or she does get an inheritance and constantly is dealing with people trying to swindle her out of it or her inheritance. Okay? Any of those three, being a widow in the time of Jesus was not a very good situation. It was a fairly hopeless situation. It would definitely be a situation in which you were at the mercy of another. So that's who we're dealing with in this, uh, in this widow. We don't know what the particular hardship is, but we do know that she's coming to the judge, and she's coming to the judge uh, to get justice. Back in... Uh, there was a widow in the city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. So she's got an adversary of some, point, or of some sort. So in the character of the widow, we're going to see a comparison and a contrast. Um, there are elements to this character that are consistent with God's people. The bigger, I think, bigger focus will be the contrast. But we'll mention the comparison first. Um, she is weak and helpless at the mercy of another be the first comparison. She's weak and helpless and at the mercy of another person. And we've just described in the case of the widow why that would be. And now you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, I'm not weak and helpless and at the mercy of another. And, and, and no, in general, you probably aren't. In general, <coughs> excuse me, as, uh, as Christians in the United States currently, we aren't generally helpless. You know, we, we do have things. But there are ways in which this could be compared to us. And certainly one of those ways in which you might be helpless and at the mercy of another is in sickness, in physical affliction. As we're all the time needing to pray for people who have some sort of, of sickness and they can't heal themselves. So they are in that sickness or in that whatever affliction it is, you are helpless at the mercy of, of another. There are also some ways in, in the, uh, the context of a of the culture that we now live in, that we are somewhat helpless uh, to, to, to do anything about it. We, we live in a culture that promotes evil, that calls evil good. We have leaders who pass laws that continue to allow this evil to happen. 
And in some ways, in an ultimate sense, but in some ways we feel a little bit helpless in those situations. We can go to the, we can go to the ballot box and we can drop our votes in. Um, if, we, if we hold for real staunch conservative values in the state of Illinois, that doesn't do a whole lot. You know, we're kind of hopeless. Um, if, we, if we are going to vote for things that would adhere to God's law, that generally is against the grain. Okay? That's the only point I'm making. In some cases today, we are somewhat hopeless, or I'm helpless, not hopeless. <laughs> We're not hopeless. We are somewhat helpless uh, in, in our situation. Okay? So there is a slight comparison there. And then it troubled and afflicted. First, the widow was being afflicted. She had an adversary she was seeking justice from. And we certainly are troubled and afflicted. Christianity is not a life of get your best life now, contrary to what some would say. You know, it's not just a life of, that's a bed of roses. It's not a, uh, a blank check where we pray and get anything we ask for. No, we, we are promised some level of trouble and affliction and persecution as followers of Jesus. That's what Jesus got, and Jesus tells his disciples that that's what they are going to, to get. Some of that's physical, just because of the effects of sin on the earth. Uh, some of that is uh, emotional or psychological, the position of the world against Christianity. You know, if you stand up for truth these days, you're going to find yourself in trouble and afflicted by others. You're going to be called the hater. You're going to be called intolerant. You're going to be called the bigot. It doesn't take very long in conversations today for that to, to happen, especially on certain subjects. Okay? So we are, in some cases, trouble, or we are troubled and afflicted like this widow uh, in, in many cases. And then another is the fact that we don't see, this is another point of troubled and afflicted, the fact that we don't see evil punished in this world a lot of times. Now, we, we see ourselves maybe in hard times and trying to do the right thing and not willing to cut corners in business, and we see others that don't have those same morals and they seem to be flourishing. You know? uh, and we know that justice will ultimately be done, but we don't see it being done immediately. So the point is, there are ways in which Christians, like the widow, are weak and helpless at the mercy of another. There are certainly ways that we are troubled and afflicted uh, and, and where we need a, a persistent uh, spirit, although that the persistent spirit of the widow is not the same as what we're going to be looking for based on who she was asking. Okay? So, but those are some comparisons. But as I said at the beginning, the bigger emphasis is on the contrast. That's where we're going to get the encouragement to be persistent in prayer is in the contrast. They are far greater than the comparison. We see... In the character of the widow, Jesus again arguing from the lesser to the greater. And so, I believe I said this before, as this parable is not to discourage us due to our lack of persistent prayer, but instead encourage us to be persistent in prayer. It's not to discourage us to say, how dare you not be persistent in prayer. It's to encourage you to be persistent in prayer. And it's to do so by looking at how much better we have it than this widow had it. How much better we have it than this widow had it. And as such, how we should also be diligent in prayer. So first, in the contrast, 
The widow was a stranger with no relation to the judge. Now, the judge had a responsibility to protect the widow, but that meant really nothing to him. She didn't mean anything to him. He didn't know anything about her. He only gave her justice eventually because she drove him crazy and he wanted to stop seeing her every day, however often she came. But that's not the case with us. Verse 6, and the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Notice, in contrast, believers are the elect of God. And notice the personal pronoun, they say, his elect. And we could spend a lot of time as to what that means, but these are people who are foreknown by God, predestined by God to be his people, to have a relationship with him. These are the people that God has chosen out of the world, has saved, has loved us, has shown grace and mercy for us, that Jesus Christ came, lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death for, in order to redeem you, in order to reconcile you to God, to adopt you into his family, it is a close relationship. The widow had nothing. You have everything. You are God's inheritance, we hear in in other places, in Ephesians. And so it's not a comparison at all. This this widow to the judge and us to to God. Because of what God has, has done for Uh, Because of what God has done for us as believers, you have a completely different position. The just judge of all the earth who will avenge all wrong is your heavenly father who has adopted you into his family and who has given at great cost to himself in order to to do this. He is also the judge who is powerful to bring about justice and as believers, we have this guarantee. The, the widow came and came and came and came again to try to get justice, not knowing if justice would ever happen and not having any relationship to the judge. You as a believer are, are encouraged to bring your request to God, knowing ultimately that God will do all things for his glory and for your good, and he will judge all the injustice. You have a guarantee. Number two, she was alone. She was completely by herself. But that's not the same as for believers. We don't see that in this passage, but we think about believers and we know that the widow was alone and we are not. We are a body of believers. We are a church, uh, a local church, but also a universal church. And the universal church are those throughout the world who are redeemed by Christ. And so we bear burdens with one another. We go together to the throne of grace, and God promises that those prayers will be answered. Matthew 18, 19. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Clearly, this is not a blank check. We are to be praying in accordance with the will of God. But when we pray in accordance with the will of God, we pray with one another. And we bear one another's burdens. And I don't know when you all as a church do that. At Grace, we do this on Sunday nights. You guys probably do it throughout the week, maybe at small groups. But we pray with one another and for one another. 
And we do that consistently, and we know that if I have an affliction and I send out a prayer request, I know for a fact that there are other people who are going to be praying with me and for me. (coughs) The widow was alone. She did not have that. But this is an encouragement to know that you're not alone. Not only are you not alone in that you have other believers praying for you, but you're not alone in that you have Jesus Christ praying for you. You have Jesus Christ interceding for you, petitioning on your behalf. He is your advocate with the Father. He is your mediator. He is constantly interceding on your behalf. And so that is a great encouragement. Number three, the widow came where she wasn't wanted. The widow came where she wasn't wanted. She was a nuisance to the judge. And so we see her request was finally granted because he was tired of hearing her. He was tired of looking at her. And he just wanted her out of his face. And so he answered, so he went ahead and gave her justice. Uh, but we're encouraged to come, even commanded to come. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it's not, we are not, when we come and bring our prayers to God, we are not coming in a place, into a place where we are not welcome. We are coming into a place where we are encouraged and commanded to come. We uh, are told of the access that we have through what Jesus did on our behalf. We're encouraged in Hebrews 4 to come boldly to the throne of grace, seeking mercy and grace to find help in time of need. We are told to call God Abba, Father, which is a very close relationship. It's a loving, gentle, or title. It's a loving, gentle command with the promise of answers to those who seek them. I was going to go to Luke 11, 9 through 13. We already read it, though. Uh, and that was talking about, you know, uh, those who, uh, you know, who as a father would give his son a scorpion, who would give him a serpent, you know, those kinds of things. You, you are being encouraged to come, and you are being promised that you will obtain answers uh, when you come. The psalmist says that the prayers of uh, the prayers of the righteous man are called a delight, a sweet fragrance to God. A delight, a sweet fragrance to God. So you are being encouraged towards fervency uh, in prayer and persistence in prayer. Unlike the widow who was coming where she was not wanted, you are coming where you have been bid to come. Okay? And then finally, she would only have certain access to the judge. She wouldn't be able to make her request at any time. She had to come during office hours, so to speak. You know, she had to only come when the judge was hearing cases. But that's not the case with you. As a believer, you have 24-7 access to God. You can bring your, you can bring your petitions to God. You are commanded even to pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, to, to pray both day and night. Our God is a God who never slumbers. He never takes a vacation. He's never not in the office that day. He's one that's always there. Uh, And always there and and always listening to our our prayers. And so we have to come back to that's the main point of the parable. The main point of the parable is to convince us of of our relationship with God that is so different than this relationship of the widow to the judge. And to encourage us to be persistent uh, in our prayers. To come to God with all that we need and to expect for him to answer. 
certainly going to face afflictions in life. Those afflictions are going to come in various forms, but when those afflictions happen, we ought to be persistent in prayer. And we, we pray in light of the fact that we're commanded to do so. Another thing that's very important for us to understand is that we pray and we need to remember the absolute privilege that it is to pray. Where this widow didn't have any privilege, yet she came with persistence, that being her only hope. She had to keep coming because if she didn't keep coming and drive the judge crazy, he wasn't going to answer her. You are in a different situation. You have been given the absolute privilege through Jesus Christ to come with your needs before God at any time of day. You've been adopted into his family and treated with love and mercy. And so you are to be persistent in prayer as well, knowing that God is righteous, he is just, he seeks our prayers, he's re- and, and he, he wants to, uh, to answer those prayers. God is also sovereign. One part about being sovereign is powerful, and another part is being wise. And so one of the problems that I had said at the very beginning about being persistent in prayer is, you know, often we ask for something, and we don't get the answer that we want, or we don't get it in the time that we want. And so rather than being persistent and praying about that particular need situation, the wisdom that is involved in it, we just we stop. We have to remember that God is not only omnipotent, all-powerful, but he's omniscient. He knows when to answer prayer, as well as how to answer prayer. And so we need to be persistent. We need to come and bring our needs before God. We need to be diligent uh, in that. But we need to understand that God will do all things in the appropriate time. He will do all things according to the counsel of his will, and that includes time and place uh, and actual answers, or the, and the actual answer that is going to come. But I, ho- I do hope this is encouraging. Again, it may be discouraging. There were parts of it, as I looked at it, that are discouraging to me because I fall short. And so if we're being convicted of sin, let's not be di- discouraged. Let's be convicted of what we've done wrong. You know, but the point of the parable was to show you the huge contrast and the benefits that you have in Christ and then to encourage you to persist in prayer. So I, I do hope that that will be the effect, uh, that you will, you will persist as brothers and sisters in Christ, that you will not faint, you will not learn, lose heart, that you'll bring your request before God, the Father of all mercy. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great and absolute privilege of prayer. Uh, We think of what cost it is to you that we could come to you in prayer. Here we are, uh, sinful men and women. Uh, We've broken your law. We've rebelled against your authority. And yet you have come into this world, lived a perfect life, and died a death on our behalf, seeking to redeem us from sin, from the bondage of sin, seeking to reconcile us to yourself and giving us this incredible privilege of prayer through Jesus Christ. Forgive us for not being people of persistent prayer. Forgive us for praying uh, when times are hard and then maybe forgetting to pray so much when times are good. Uh, Forgive us for uh, 
not continuing on to identify what your will is in difficult situations. Just help us to do that. Help us to be encouraged by this story, uh, to see our place in relation to you as, as a, a stark contrast to the widow and the judge. May it encourage us all to pray. We thank you so much for Jesus Christ. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done uh, on our behalf. Help us now as we go uh, out into this week that we may do all uh, for your honor and glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.